Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. A lot of history is comprised of legendary facts. The problem is legends erode or change shape over time. American society has been cruising past a series of major quatrocentenaries over the last few years, and given the state of the country, disentangling the historical truth of these events from historical legends has been fraught. Did American society commence in 1619 with the arrival of the first boatload of African slaves? In 1620, when the Mayflower missed its target of the mouth of the Hudson and ended up making landfall on a giant sandbar several hundred miles northeast, Cape Cod, or 1621, when the very few survivors of the Mayflower's passengers and crew celebrated their first harvest in the New World with a feast of thanksgiving. Each event, 400 years past, and their meanings, still disputed. It would be nice if these disputes were civil, but that's not the case. Don't want to get too deep into metaphors about time's passage being like a river, but as the 400 mark for these big events is reached, the river is passing over rapids. When the 250th anniversary of these events, including Thanksgiving, occurred, time's river was in a deep, fast-running channel. Slavery had just been ended, the Union preserved, the American story was daily being framed from a northern perspective. What was happening to the indigenous people out west was seen as a war rather than a genocide, and it was forgiven because it ran hand in hand with a technological transformation of the idea of distance and time via rail and telegraph, and that was happening uniquely in America. So it was a war for progress. This new understanding of America would hold for a century. The legend of the first Thanksgiving was part of it, and is the story I learned from the beginning of my schooling in the 1950s, and, if we're roughly the same age, you learned it as well. The story of the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, if told just factually, might not mean so much to Americans if it wasn't for the poem, an epic poem that created a legendary hero and heroine. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's epic poem, the courtship of Miles Standish, 1,018 lines of dactylic meter in which Longfellow tells the story of both men's love for the Puritan maiden Priscilla. It's a potboiler of a story, a Cyrano de Bergerac-like tale in which a tongue-tied warrior, Standish, asks a friend with the gift of words, Alden, to woo a woman, Priscilla, for him, without knowing that his friend is also in love with her. The difference being that in Longfellow's poem, as opposed to Edmund Rostand's play, Standish is not pretty, like Christian, and John Alden doesn't have Cyrano's nose problem. The poem chunters along. Alden messes up the courtship on his friend's behalf so transparently that Priscilla interrupts. Archly the maiden smiled, and with eyes overrunning with laughter, said in a tremulous voice, "'Why don't you speak for yourself, John?' Alden does, wins her heart, and Standish goes off to make war against the unfriendly indigenous people. On publication in 1858, 25,000 copies of the poem were sold in two months. That was a lot. The courtship of Miles Standish and the romantically perfect couple at its heart, John and Priscilla Alden, elevated the story of the pilgrims and the Mayflower to legend. 
partially because Longfellow was an enormously popular writer, but also because the poem had a topicality. In 1858, the U.S. was veering towards civil war. Then, as now, the nation's origin story was hotly debated. The Jamestown colony in Virginia, the southern state which would soon become the capital of the Confederacy, was the site of the country's first permanent settlement in 1607, 13 years before the Mayflower reached Cape Cod. Its founding, too, had mythic elements, the story of Pocahontas and Captain John Smith. In the poet's words, Plymouth Rock becomes the cornerstone of the nation. When the Union defeated the Confederacy in the Civil War, the Mayflower Pilgrim story became the dominant foundation myth. The Pilgrims had braved the unknown to find religious freedom. No matter that half the Mayflower passengers had set forth for commercial reasons and were not part of the religious group. The pilgrims had held a Thanksgiving to mark their first harvest in the New World. Yet the holiday of Thanksgiving didn't really begin to dominate American consciousness until after the poem was published, and its impact really lasted a long time. My mother regularly quoted, Speak for yourself, John, when she felt lumped in with one of my father's opinions, or when I used a friend as the source for some outrageous false fact. But Dougie says it's true. Speak for yourself, John. Year five Thanksgiving assembly, I played John Alton, emoting like a junior Olivier. Only time in my acting life that I ever got the girl. But as the decades have passed, Longfellow's version of the story has faded. We live in times where a more historically factual approach to the colonization of New England is required. You can judge whether the facts are as interesting as the legend. Sometime in July 1620, the Mayflower, with around 65 passengers on board, set sail from Rotherhithe in London, went down the Thames estuary, hung a right, and then another right around the Kent coast, and sailed on to Southampton to take on provisions and more crew and wait for a smaller ship, the Speedwell, bringing the bulk of the pilgrim contingent from Leiden in the Netherlands. The group were not known as pilgrims at that point. They identified as separatist Puritans, stricter in their beliefs than the main body of that sect which was growing in England. The separatists had fled to the Netherlands several years earlier to escape the consequences of their preaching against the established church. John Alden was 21 or 22 when he joined the crew. He was not a fellow believer in the separatist way. He left no diary that explains his motivations in joining the voyage. Maybe the sense of adventure captured him. By the 1620s, the age of exploration was well underway. A young, single man living in one of the preeminent embarkation points for exploration hears of a ship making the voyage in need of a barrel maker. Why not? Or it might be that he was already friendly with a local family who were also signed on for the voyage. William Mullins, a shoemaker, his wife, son, and 17-year-old daughter, Priscilla. The two ships set sail, but the Speedwell began taking on water. The convoy put in for repairs at Dartmouth and set off again. But some leagues past land's end, the Speedwell started to leak again. The ships turned around and went to Plymouth, where the Leiden vessel was declared unseaworthy. About half the passengers were transferred to the Mayflower, and finally, in September, they set off. 132 people in all, maybe half of them members of the religious group. Saints and strangers is how historians divide them. The delays leaving England meant that the Mayflower had set sail in the heart of the Atlantic hurricane season. 
The voyage was difficult, and when the ship finally made landfall, it was clear that they had missed their intended destination. But even here, they were not in an unknown place. Part of the pilgrim myth is the group set forth into the unknown, to a new world where they could be free to worship as they pleased. But in fact, the east coast of North America was already familiar. Jamestown, as I said, was founded in 1607, and the pilgrims were granted a charter for their settlement in the northern part of the territory claimed by the Virginia colony around the mouth of the Hudson River in what is now New York. Nor was this just a religious venture. Financial backing had to be secured to hire the Mayflower and provide funds to get the group going. In return, the anticipated produce of the colony especially furs, were promised to the Plymouth Company, a group of merchant adventurers. One of the largest shareholders in the company was William Mullins, clearly more prosperous than the average cobbler. The specific spot they arrived at was not entirely terra incognita. For more than a decade, English seafarers, including Virginia's Captain John Smith, had been exploring and charting the region. Cape Cod had been named by a captain called Bartholomew Gosnold because, yes, there was an abundance of cod in the sea surrounding that elbow-shaped spit of land extending into the Atlantic. It was already mid-November when the Mayflower rounded the tip of the Cape and dropped anchor at what is today Provincetown, winter racing in. They had barely made it across the Atlantic. To sail down the coast to their contracted landfall by the Hudson seemed foolhardy. Cape Cod, it really is just a giant sandbar, was no place to winter. It was decided to explore the bay to find a better mooring. But first, there was a legal matter. The group needed to reconstitute itself as they were outside the original jurisdiction of their contract. And also, tension was building between the separatists and the others who were on the ship. For survival's sake, the community could not break up. So they wrote the Mayflower Compact in the name of God and their dread sovereign lord, King James, to combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation. John Olden was a signatory of the Mayflower Compact, his first entry in history. So was William Mullins. The next day, the Mayflower's small boat was launched and a reconnoitering party went looking for a suitable winter anchorage. Alden is reputed to have been among the explorers. They found a good harbor just where the cape is bolted onto the mainland, a place marked by a large boulder. Was Alden really the first out of the boat onto Plymouth Rock? And so the Mayflower wintered at the place they called Plymouth. Winter had already taken hold. It was too late to disembark and build houses to withstand New England blizzards. The company remained crammed into the Mayflower. Disease took hold. Half the ship's passengers were dead by spring, including Rose Standish, wife of Miles, and the entire Mullins family, except Priscilla. In the spring, the Mayflower's captain, Christopher Jones, returned to England. Alden was faced with a decision, return or stay with the fifty or so survivors of the winter. Longfellow begins his poem on the eve of the Mayflower's departure. And the crucial moment finds Alden, having declared his love for Priscilla, standing one foot on Plymouth Rock, one foot on the small boat's gunwale, the sailors ready to take him to the Mayflower, its sails already unfurled, and he sees his beloved looking at him imploringly, and he changes his mind. 
Strange is the heart of man, with its quick, mysterious instincts. Strange is the life of man, and fatal or fated are moments. Here I remain, he exclaimed, as he looked at the heavens above him. And so the Mayflower sailed back, and Alden remained. The departure of the Mayflower, as its sails receded to the horizon, must have been a moment when mundane fear overwhelmed the separatist sense of godly election. They would have known the fate of the lost colony of Roanoke, established in 1587 by Walter Raleigh. The ship that left those first colonists was due back the following year with more supplies. But it was three years before an English ship returned to Roanoke, and it found no colonists. They had all disappeared. But in the three years since Roanoke, the eastern seaboard had become umbilically linked to the mother country. The likelihood of being forgotten was small, and contact with indigenous people had become so common that an English-speaking native, Squanto, who had lived in England, became their translator and made go-between with local tribes. The community went about the business of settlement. Alton's carpentry skills made him a key figure. He married Priscilla Mullins. By 1626, Alden had acquired sufficient capital to be one of a small group who paid off the colony's debts to the Mayflower's backers in return for a monopoly on exporting fur back to England. He was, for decades, elected to Plymouth Colony's council and frequently was appointed from the council to act as deputy governor. His stature within the community grew as did the Alden family. The separatists regarded fecundity as a blessing from God. I mean, these were people who named their children increase and deliverance and fortune. Priscilla gave birth to ten children who survived childhood. The couple were also long-lived. Half the Mayflower's passengers did not survive the first winter in the New World. John and Priscilla survived nearly seven decades of them. Plymouth Colony did not survive as long. It was subsumed by the much larger Massachusetts Bay Colony, a Puritan rather than separatist settlement, which had been founded a decade later, 40 miles up the coast in what is today Boston. John and Priscilla created a tribe in two generations. Their ten children gave the couple 70 grandchildren. Subsequent generations were similarly fruitful. One of their direct descendants was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Facts and legends, neither are fixed in stone. Longfellow's poem is no longer taught. Today's lessons in American schools are very much about the effect of the pilgrims on indigenous people, and less about a man and his wife who embody a new nation. In the run-up to this 400th Thanksgiving, the Washington Post has already had a story about contemporary Wampanoags, the local tribe, and their regrets about helping the pilgrims, as if letting the pilgrims all starve to death would have stopped European conquest of North America. England was late to the Europeans' extending dominion over the continent. By the time the first attempt to colonize at Roanoke was set up, there was already a French colony a bit further south, near what is today the U.S. Marine Corps' main training center at Paris Island. And there was another French colony in Florida, not to mention the various settlements in Canada. The Spanish established the first settlement in New Mexico in 1598 and founded Santa Fe as territorial capital a decade before the pilgrims arrived. So when does America start? Where? final time in the river simile. It's like trying to decide where the headwaters of the Amazon lie. 
Is it in 1598 when Don Juan de Oñate crossed the Rio Grande near El Paso to claim the territory of New Mexico for Spain? 1607 when Jamestown was planted and took root? 1619, when a ship called the White Lion landed at Point Comfort, Virginia, and disgorged its surviving human cargo. 1620, 1621, Pilgrims, First Thanksgiving, 1776, 1787, the Constitution, 1865, the Union preserved in the Civil War, 1892, when Ellis Island opened in the middle of the great wave of immigration from Europe that had as much to do with making the America of today as the arrival of English settlers and the slaves some of them owned. And choose any one of those dates, and a hundred years from now, will Americans still think that is the founding event exactly as we remember it? America is a fact, but its truth is so multifaceted and multidimensional that it is impossible to state simply. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. But when the truth becomes too complex, write a poem about it. Langston Hughes, African-American poet of the years before the Second World War, to my mind, touched on the truth for contemporary America, and that was more than 80 years ago, in the heart of the Great Depression. The factual America he wrote about is gone, but his prophetic view and poetry is a form of prophecy, still holds, for me anyway. For him, America is a place where the ideal and the reality vie, and the degree to which the America of the moment falls short of its ideal provides the energy to push the society to living out those ideals. So on this Thanksgiving, I'm not going to read Longfellow. I'm going to read Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love, where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real, and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, not freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark, and who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I'm the negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog -dog of mighty crush the weak. I'm the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker sold to the machine. I am the negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean. Hungry yet today, despite the dream. Beaten yet today. 
Oh, pioneers, I am the man who never got ahead, the poorest worker bartered through the years. Yet, I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world while still a serf of kings, who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings in every brick and stone, in every furrow turned, that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. For I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lea and torn from black Africa's strand I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today, the millions shot down when we strike, the millions who have nothing for our pay, for all the dreams we've dreamed, and all the songs we've sung, and all the hopes we've held, and all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay, except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet, and yet must be, the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again. America. Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we, the people, must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain and all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. Happy Thanksgiving, and that's all for this FRDH podcast. There's more to listen to at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. While you're there, please make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. <laughs>